John Constantine, a Hellblazer podcast. and welcome back before we get into the episode just want to let you know that this is the free version of the podcast and all that means is that we are way behind where i'm at in patreon so if you are loving this podcast and you need more john constantine in your life definitely go check us out at patreon.com slash planes trains and comic books and sign up for the hellblazer tier where you'll get access to the entire hellblazer library that i've recorded so far and also you get access to the exclusive episodes of the planes trains and comic books main podcast so if any of that sounds good to you, definitely go over to patreon.com slash planes, trains, and comic books, all one word, and sign up there. And with that out of the way, let's get into the issue. Today we are doing Hellblazer number 31, and just a little catch up on what's been going on in the series. We have just wrapped up the Family Man story arc where John got involved with a serial killer named the Family Man, and he had to track down that serial killer and ended up killing him by shooting him with a gun which is something John has said that he never really wanted to do. He does not like guns. It's something that he uh, is kind of against. So that that shows you how messed up John was in his mind. And a lot of that was caused because the family man actually killed John's father while he was trying to discover John or get John to come out of hiding. So uh, that is probably another reason why John was very upset at the man enough to shoot him with a gun. And that is where we're picking up in this issue. So first things first, we got the cover here we see a uh, very pale man with only one arm. It seems that maybe he is coming out of the darkness and possibly going towards like a crib or a child's room because there's some stars and planets hanging from one of those toys that goes over a crib. And uh, the person's face that's on the cover is obscured and they just don't look very good overall. And uh, we also see that the writer of this is Jamie Delano with art by a new artist named Sean Phillips. And I make special note of that because I really enjoy Sean Phillips' art. Uh, and this is some of the earliest stuff that I've ever seen from him. Uh, currently, he's doing a book with Ed Brubaker called Reckless. It's like a whole series. It's like a crime fiction book. And uh, it's fantastic. So check that out if, if you like uh, Sean Phillips or if you have any interest in crime. But uh, his art for Hellblazer is particularly good. So with that, let's get into the issue. We start off with a night shot of London. Uh, we see the moon is full. Of course, because it's a comic book and every moon and every comic book is full. And uh, we see, you know, the, like the street lights and the cars and all that stuff. And the panels below that are zooming in on a specific window. And it is the window of the Masters family. And we know the Masters family because that is John's sister, Cheryl, and her husband and her daughter named Gemma. And we've seen Gemma before in an early issue of this run. I think it's issue three or four where Gemma was abducted by a serial killer who killed children and sacrificed them for this damnation army cult. And uh, John had to save her from that. So the panels kind of go through the house and end up in Gemma's room, who is about two years older than when we saw her last. And we get some narration that kind of sets this up. It says, in this house, the master's family lie abed, jaded with the week-long aftermath of sudden death. Cheryl and Tony gratefully submerge their jagged days in drug-assisted sleep. Only Gemma lies awake, five nights now, or is it six, 
since someone killed her granddad with a knife. Only Gemma lies awake, waiting again for that damp disinfectant draft and trembling scrape of nervous fingers plucking at her. And in the panel that goes with that last bit of narration, we see Gemma is laying in bed, but she is not asleep. Her eyes are open as we see a ghostly hand paw at the covers that she is pulling over her. And she seems pretty scared, but she does get the courage to sit up and she turns over and turns the light on and she sees her recently deceased grandfather and he's super pale and sickly. He's missing an arm. And it also looks like he doesn't have a lower body, like his body just stops after his uh, rib cage and then there's like kind of nothing there, maybe a little bit of ghost static, I guess you call it, that's like floating below him. And it seems like Gemma gets the courage to sit up because she's kind of going on what John told her a while back, that if she sees things, they're just visions and they can't really hurt her. But this one seems a bit different and definitely more real than anything she's ever seen before. So she looks at the ghost and says, Granddad, what are you doing? Get some clothes on. You look silly. And then there's kind of a close up of the grandpa's face and he looks all sad and kind of like pleading to her. And as he looks, she yells back at him, go away, granddad. I don't want you to be here. And then she throws her pillow at him. But he doesn't seem too dissuaded because he walks over closer to her covers and he begins to pull them down so like he's going to get in the bed with her. And then the narration says, but he was cold and scared like a child lost in the empty night looking for comfort in a mother's bed. And as he sits down on the bed and like starts to move the comforter over him, uh, Gemma stands up and says, please, granddad, you're frightening me. You can't get in bed. It won't do you any good. You're dead. And it seems like even though she's kind of doing what John told her to do whenever she sees these visions, this one is not going away. Um, and so it says, no, no, it wasn't working. It wasn't working. It wasn't working. It wasn't a dream. And at that moment, she runs out of the room screaming down the stairs. And uh, then we cut to probably a couple minutes later where she's in the kitchen with her parents. And the mom is sitting with her at the table trying to talk to her and figure out what's going on. And the narration says, her parents thought she was disturbed. Her father wouldn't meet her eye and muttered about therapy and counseling, but she'd had enough of those. Her mother hugged her, desperately tight, and asked in one tiny voice if Granddad had ever done anything to her when he was alive. So basically the mom's thinking that she's having these visions because possibly her granddad like abused her sexually or something, and maybe now that he's dead, her trauma, if she had any with him, is now coming out in these visions. But Gemma is very adamant that Grandpa didn't do anything to her. Um, it says Granddad was always nice to her. He was scruffy and grumpy, and his flat smelled, but he told her funny stories. She didn't want to make them think badly of him. Her parents were stretched to the limit. The more she tried to explain, the more damage she'd do. She was grown up now. She'd have to cope with this alone. So coming to this conclusion, Gemma just puts on a fake face and starts to act and says, I'm sorry I frightened you both. You're right. It was just a dream. I feel better now. Good night. And then she walks upstairs, but that doesn't change anything. When she gets back into her bed, she's still freaking out as the hand of her grandfather once again begins to paw at the comforter and he tries to get in the bed with her. And the narration says, and every night since he's come back silently pleading cold in the bed behind her stealing her warmth surely it would end tomorrow after the funeral when his body was burned surely then his ghost would rest and if not well but uncle john would be there by then and he'd promised her mom he'd know how to help uncle john knows about ghosts 
And we see the name of this issue is called Morning of the Magician, and morning is spelled like your morning of death, not morning like the sunrise. And as we see that title, we also see it's probably tomorrow morning because we get a shot of the outside of a church, and there's a hearse outside waiting for the service to be over. And also, there's a person outside who seems to be smoking, and we only see the foot of the person, but they're stamping out a cigarette. And I think it's safe to say that that is John Constantine. But he is not going inside the church. He's just waiting outside. And we see inside, of course, the funeral is happening. And Gemma is with her parents. And she's kind of thinking to herself, why isn't John here? I can't believe Uncle John let me down. And the narration says, why? Why is this happening? Why is she the only one who can see? And in the panel, Gemma seems to be staring at something kind of wide-eyed. And then we get a panel of what she's staring at. And she is staring at her grandfather's ghost who is sitting on his own casket. And the narration says, Gemma's tongue is fat and dry. She can't say the words with the others, but in her head, she's praying very hard over and over again. Please, please, when the curtains close and the coffin rolls off to the fires, please go with it, granddad. His need is strangling her heart. Why is he tormenting her? She used to like him. She doesn't want to remember him like this. He's so thin and shriveled and ugly, like a sad old monkey in a cage. He's depressed, confused, trapped in a baffling place. Oh God, what if he doesn't know he's dead? And as she thinks that, the service ends as the priest kind of wraps up the prayer and the curtains around the casket close and also enclose the grandfather behind them as well. And then we cut to John who is still outside and he's kind of humming and hawing. He's debating whether he should go in or not, but funerals aren't really his thing, he says. And uh, he's just kind of waiting outside. And the narration says, hmm, I promised I'd be here, but I didn't promise I'd go in. Maybe I'm immature, but funerals turn me right off. They're just a front, a way of making death official. They give the bereaved a final chance to make the emotional account nice and tidy, to assure the posterity of their respect that they'll speak no ill. But it's a bit late for respect now. There's a shitload of unfinished business between me and the old man. Looks like it's going to have to stay that way. And as his inner narration says this, he kind of goes over to the main big wooden doors of the church and he opens it to kind of peer in and see where they're at in the service. And the narration continues, oh, well, it's all over. Cheryl's putting on a brave face, leading the singing. Tony looks as if he's in a coma. Jesus, Gemma looks rough. She's grown up. It must be two years since we got her back out of that damnation army specimen's grubby burrow. Hopefully she's coping okay. And then John kind of backs out and closes the door behind him. And he walks all the way around the church to the back area where I guess the casket is about to be sent and cremated. As he does this, John also narrates uh, a little interesting tidbit. He says, since Nergal, churches have a tendency to make my blood boil, literally. So that's some lore I've never heard before. I don't know if he's allowed to be in churches after the blood transfusion from the demon Nergal, but he seems to think that that is a thing that could happen. So like I said, he goes to the back doors where the cremation is about to happen and he goes in and there's a man sitting there who's the guy who actually does the cremating and he's dressed like a maintenance worker and he's actually eating his lunch. He's just sitting there right next to the oven where they burn bodies and he's eating a sandwich, drinking tea and reading Penthouse. And when John walks in, he's kind of startled and he says, hey, you can't come in here. There's no mourners allowed. And then John kind of talks to him and says, oh, I'm not a mourner. I'm just curious. And at this, the man kind of perks up and gets kind of a ghoulish smile on his face. And then he allows John to just sit there and he says, okay, then there's one coming through in a minute. You can see him go up the chimney. Then you're out of here, right? 
And basically, it seems like this dude is way too into uh, burning bodies. <laughs> and John picks up on this, so he's kind of creeped out, and especially because it's like his dad's body. So the casket comes into the, I guess, burning area, and the man pushes the button to burn it. And then we cut to the front of the church where Gemma and the family are about to leave. And as Gemma gets into the car, all of a sudden, she has like a psychic moment where she has like an intuition about something bad going to happen. And at the exact moment that the man pushes the button on the incinerator, Gemma grabs her face and begins to scream. And the narration says, oh, God, something's going to happen. Flames roaring. She can feel it. Something's coming. And then it's almost as if Gemma has some kind of seizure. Her body like kind of throws itself backward and tenses as the grandfather's corpse actually does the same thing inside of the cremation chamber. And the guy running the machine next to Constantine says, the fire shrinks up the muscles real quick. <laughs> Lie down, you silly bastard. Your hair's on fire. And the grandfather's body does in fact burn up and is fully cremated, but his ghost is still around and it actually runs out from behind the church and towards Gemma. And of course, everybody has gathered around her. Her parents are trying to uh, check on her and make sure she's okay. And she's just saying, make him go away. And then we cut to later that night where we're back at Gemma's house and she's laying in her bed. And of course, her parents are downstairs and they're talking about everything that happened. And they're very worried about their daughter. And the narration says, the house has quieted now. The great aunts and uncles have eaten all the pressed beef sandwiches and left for home. Dad's gone to bed with a migraine. Gemma wishes she could just shut it out with sleep. She's been trying all afternoon, but the smell won't go away. It's like burned bacon. And when she looks, something black and greasy thickens the shadowed corner of the room. It's granddad. He's coming back again. And this time it's going to be much worse. This time he's going to be all burned up. Why does he have to pick on her? It's not her fault. What's she supposed to do about it? He'll drive her mad. And in this panel, we see her leaving the room, like holding under her head. And she's walking down the stairs. But she hears a familiar voice that kind of snaps her back into reality and she realizes who it is and it is her uncle john and john is talking to her mother and cheryl is trying to see if john thinks that maybe her theory about granddad abusing Gemma is feasible or if he thinks that that's a possibility at all but john doesn't think anything like that happened of course he says to her she's had a lot of weirdness in her life she's bound to get strange reactions to things and that kind of puts Cheryl's mind at ease. But as they're talking, Gemma comes in the room and says hello. And John asks how she is. And she says that she needs to get some fresh air and invites John to go on a walk with her. And obviously she's trying to just get some answers from him and ask him about this ghost of the granddad and why wouldn't leave her alone. So as they're walking, she asks John if ghosts are real and he tells her that they are. He says they can't hurt you physically, but they can damage your mind if you let them get to you. And he does actually broach the subject of if grandpa ever did anything to her, following up on what Cheryl was asking him. I guess he's just trying to make sure nothing like that happened. And she tells John definitively for the last time that no, nothing happened. Grandpa never did anything like that. And as they're walking, we do see that the ghost of the grandfather is kind of appearing in areas of the path that they're walking. So he's sitting on like a park bench as they walk by. So he's definitely on this walk with them for a reason. And Jem is asking John about his relationship with the grandfather. And of course, John's like, yeah, we didn't get along. John says, I couldn't stand him. Always thought he resented me. And then Gemma says, I suppose that was because your mom died when you were born. And John replies, yeah, probably. I didn't realize it then, though. I just knew there was always something missing. All I could do was wind him up all the time. The poor old sod. 
bringing me and Cheryl up on his own must have been murder. And then John asks Gemma if the grandpa is there now. And she says, yeah, he's here right by that tree. And she points to a tree. And even though John can't see him, he begins to kind of talk in that general direction of the tree. And he says, come on, dad, cut this out, huh? I'm sorry, but it's done now. It's over. You're dead and cremated. You're free. You don't have to stay here anymore. And anyway, why take it out on the girl? If you want to haunt someone, haunt me. Where's your sense of humor, Pop? Don't they say all sons kill their father? And upon saying that, John seems to have some kind of revelation. And the narration of John says, it's part of growing up. Growing up. Growing up. And then he says, oh Christ, idiot, idiot, idiot. How could I forget? And then he turns to Gemma and says, Gem, I'm truly sorry. This is all my fault, but I think I know how to put it right. So he begins to walk off and he tells his dad to come with him. And Gemma tells him that, yes, the grandfather is following John. And so he begins to walk and he kind of has a heart-to-heart talk with the ghost that he can't see, but he's assuming that his father is there. And he says, we never saw eye to eye, did we? You with all that working class pragmatism and me with all that arty farty little ponce. You know, I can't remember us ever talking to each other properly. It's going to be a bit one-sided now, I'm afraid. Still, you know what they say, confession's good for the soul, yours and mine. And then John begins to confess exactly what happened with the family man to his dad. He says, first off, the maniac who killed you was my enemy. I was hiding, so he took you instead. If it's any consolation, he's dead now as well. I killed him, but keep that to yourself, huh? Violent death must be a terrible shock. Pretty disorienting to the psyche, I expect. But that's not why you're here, still hanging around. No, it's a much older story. And then we get a nice flashback of John Constantine in his teenage years. And we see him and his dad kind of yelling at each other in John's room. And apparently John's dad has found his magic books. And his dad is not very happy that his son, who he kind of just wishes was a regular boy, like... He likes sports, like football or whatever, and would want to just, you know, be one of the guys at school. But no, he's got to get into magic and crazy hippie rock music and stuff. So during this argument, his dad takes all his magic books and throws them in the fireplace and lights them on fire. And then I guess his dad leaves because John is able to pull a couple of those magic books out of the flames before they've completely burned up. And John says he was basically angry with revenge, and that's all he could think about, so... He happened to look and find that a piece of his book that wasn't burned was a spell called To Wreak Slow Death Upon Your Enemy. So he read this chapter of the book and he did a spell where he kills a neighborhood cat and puts his dad's tie on it to kind of connect it with his dad's soul. And then he buried it behind the dustbin, he says. And then John's narration says, A week passed as the cat rotted in the ground. You started to get ill and old. All the fight seemed to go out of you. The balance of power shifted. My challenge was successful. I was king of the castle now. These days, when we argued, there was a flicker of fear in your eyes. You kept getting weaker, took to your bed, tired and bitter with the injustice of your life. You surrendered. But in the moment of victory, I was scared, and, oh God, I didn't want to kill you. You were my father. I just wanted you to love me. I didn't know what to do. I dug up the cat... I searched through the remnants of the book, but there was no method of reversal. You were dying and I was helpless and ashamed. I cried and racked my brains. In desperation, I broke into the school and stole a jar of formaldehyde from the lab. My magic had linked your life force to the carcass of the cat. If I could stop it rotting, I might at least arrest your inexorable decline. So if you're not following along, John killed a cat, made a curse on his dad, 
that tied his dad's life force and soul to this rotting cat's body. And the more the cat rotted, the more his dad's body rotted. And when he had a change of heart, he had no way to reverse the spell. So he thought the best thing to do would be to preserve the cat's body to stop it from rotting. And at least his dad's body would stay the same as it is right now and not get any worse. And that actually seemed to work. He says, somehow it worked. You didn't get much better, but you didn't get much worse. I was relieved, but I still couldn't look you in the eye. So John realized he's got to keep this jar of formaldehyde in a place that it's not going to get broken and continue to rot because his dad would die then. So he did the only thing he could think of, like the safest place it could go. He took it to his mom's grave and he buried it under her headstone. And then we cut back to present day where John is walking in the graveyard where his mom is buried and he finds his mom's grave and he's able to dig up the jar of the cat and formaldehyde. And as he's doing this, he's talking and he says, I guess I buried this pretty deep. And over the years, it got all concealed in that adolescent turmoil, the normal stuff between sons and fathers. You lost your influence as I shut you more and more firmly out. Constant disapproval, mutual resentment. What a pathetic mess. Look, if it means anything at all now, I do care. I do respect your life. It was just so hard and miserable. It scared the shit out of me. It'll all be over soon now. That's all I've got to give. A proper funeral so you can rest. Enjoy it. You've earned it. What was she like, my mom? What would she have thought of me? Give her my love, will you? And as he says this, he dumps out the jar of formaldehyde and the cats along with it. And he gathers a bunch of dead flowers and other stuff that will burn. And he builds a little pyre on top of the cat's body. And then I guess Gemma got tired of waiting. So she actually uh, finds John in the cemetery and says, John, are you all right? They closed the cafe and I got lonely. It's so cold. What are you doing? Lighting a fire? And as she asks that, John lights the pyre with the cat's body in it. And it, it totally like bursts into flames. So apparently the dead roses and flowers are really, really good fire starter. Because the flames are like going 20 feet high. <laughs> And then John looks over at Gemma and he says, come and get warm, kid. You can keep me company and we'll say goodbye to granddad together. And that is the end of the issue. So if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can email me at plainstrandsandcomicbooks, all one word at gmail.com. We will see y'all in the next one.